This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Massachusetts has enjoyed a generation-long economic renaissance driven by its cultivation of new technologies, such as biotech, as well as its attracting older firms to relocate, such as General Electric. This success is owed in no small part from its decision to eschew its former high-tax policies that had earned it the nickname of Taxachusetts and embark on a glide toward a lower income tax rate to one near middle of the nationwide pack. Despite the clear, demonstrated success of the state's more moderate tax policy, this November, Massachusetts voters will be asked to amend its constitution to instantiate an 80% income tax increase for its highest earners. This euphemistically labeled fair share amendment, a tax on any income over $1 million, comes at a remarkable time when the state coffers are bulging from billions in budget surplus revenue and from generous federal stimulus and aid for infrastructure. While its backers assure voters that the money will be well spent, fair share advocates must address voters' reasonable concerns that returning to past high tax policies will not also return the Massachusetts economy back to economic stagnation and malaise. Indeed, what lessons should voters take from the success of our past? And what can we learn from other states that chose to raise taxes on high earners in the past and are now dealing with the consequences? My guest today is Greg Sullivan, Senior Fellow at Pioneer Institute and author of the book, Back to Taxachusetts, which is set to release this week. Mr. Sullivan will share with us the themes of his book based on careful research and analysis of the decades-long success of the Massachusetts economy and contrast our outcomes with those of other states, such as Connecticut and California, that levied higher rates on their state's highest earners. We will discuss who will likely be affected by a so-called millionaire's tax and why such taxes can be so destructive to the long-term health of a state's economy. He will also speak to his concern that, contrary to the assurance of the amendment's supporters, the new revenue may be spent merely to increase the size, but not the quality, of our state's government. When I return, I'll be joined by senior fellow and author, Greg Sullivan. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. I'm now pleased to be joined by Pioneer Institute's senior fellow and co-author of the soon-to-be-released book, Back to Taxachusetts, Greg Sullivan. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Greg. Thanks, Joe. Okay, I just finished reading an early copy of your new book. I, I found it wonderfully informative, interesting, and chock full of uh, uh, data that uh, uh, even though I, I do many topics on these uh, same issues, uh, I learned a great deal from the book. So, um, but before we get into the book, let's let's take a, a wider view and say, who did you, know, you sat down and wrote this book? Who is your target audience? Who, who do you expect to pick up this book and learn something? Uh, number one, we're, we're hoping to get the word out to the general public and the voting public uh, indirectly by putting out uh, facts and figures, uh, solid statistical analysis out there as part of the dialogue. And that's the right now. A lot of the work we did was uh, in an effort to get information to the legislature as well. But now the legislature put it on the ballot for November. So that ship has sailed. So this is all about the general public. So we're, we're trying to reach, um, let's say, uh, the general public. But I know from my own emails, I get plenty of emails that say, you know, from people who clearly think, 
all taxes are bad. Uh, I understand their arguments. And there's certainly folks out there who think, you know, all taxes are good. They all make for a better society. So uh, it seems to me from reading the book that you're trying to aim for the persuadable middle if, if there is still such a thing, uh, much the same way we try to do here at Hubwonk. Uh, so let's stop, start at the uh, beginning. Um, I moved to Massachusetts I, way back in 1993. And back then we were known as Taxachusetts. Uh, uh, and uh, so here we are uh, much later and, and we're no longer known that way. So let's get a little bit of uh, history. Why were we known as Taxachusetts in the past? The, the term Taxachusetts was no uh, joke. Uh, Massachusetts was ranked as the third highest taxing state in the country in 1970. And that's by uh, the Tax Foundation, the combination of income taxes and local property taxes. And that began to change in 1980 when Proposition 2.5 passed. That was the initiative petition that put limits on the amount of uh, local property taxes. Uh, and the legislature also followed up by reducing the uh, income tax rate uh, from 1.5.6% uh, down to 5%. Those two things really made Massachusetts kind of reformed Taxachusetts. Taxachusetts really en has ended. Uh, I mean, I, I think the, that the voters of Massachusetts and the state legislature uh, made a decision that taxation levels at a very high were hurting the economy, and they've addressed it. Right now, we're in the middle of the pack. We're like ranked 24th out of 50 states uh, in terms of our combined uh, state and local property taxes. That's a big difference from being among the very, very highest to the middle of the road. And that's a, it's an economic advantage to us to be reasonable tax state. Well, being in the middle, I suppose, you know, is, is a good place on this index. So we're neither bad nor good. We're somewhere in the middle. So folks, we're in the here. middle. All right. So uh, uh, from bad to uh, to average, I'm, I'm happy with that. Now, um, as those of us who advocate generally for lower taxes or more uh, business friendly environments, we say that um, lowering taxes does have the effect of uh, encouraging more growth and therefore ultimately more taxes. Uh, but what has been the effect since becoming um, uh, going from the worst to the middle of the pack over the last 30 or 40 years? Have, have we indeed have those promises been kept? Has the Massachusetts economy boomed in that time? Yes. Um, the best the best way to look at it, uh, this uh, this issue is to look at comparing uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts. Uh, everybody knows that Massachusetts basically pirated away GE. Uh, one of the nation's premier companies from Connecticut moved to Massachusetts right after Mass right after Connecticut boomed their taxes uh, for on in on uh, individuals and affecting companies as well. So uh, Massachusetts has has uh, done very very well in comparison to other New England states because of our economic competitiveness. The problem is that. We're in an, a very, very competitive environment among the states uh, looking for companies to locate here and to stay here. Very fierce competition. And uh, we're kind of up against it in New England for a number of reasons. Uh, sure. So, so I want to get into. I want to take apart all of those um, uh, issues. So, um, you you say we're doing well. We're doing particularly well compared to our neighbor uh, in uh, Connecticut. 
Um, so I want to unpack a lot of the themes in the book here, but let's start at the beginning. I think if I, the common thread through the whole book, this fear of becoming Taxachusetts again is largely predicated on this new ballot measure that's coming down for our for voters in 2022 of November. Um, which uh, give it call it what you will. Some call it the fair share tax. Some call it uh, Prop 80 or the millionaires tax. Uh, but for our listeners who aren't uh, studying this all the time, what what is it that they will be asked to vote on? What is this fair share amendment that that they'll be asked to vote on in November? Well, the fair share amendment that's going to be in the ballot in November would add a eighty uh, percent increase to the top marginal tax rate for for income over a million dollars, and that so th- this would ch- change Massachusetts from being basically in the middle of the pack in the country with a, with a pretty decent uh, advantageous tax rate to being among the very highest of the country. And uh, and that's the, the, propo- the proposal, if it's adopted, would apply to income over $1 million. But the way that they wrote the proposal, it applies to all income. In other words, it, it applies to income from capital gains. It comes from sell- selling your house, uh, stocks, bonds affects people when they retire. If for somebody who sells their business, uh, that, that's their retirement, their nest egg. Uh, they're one-time millionaires. That's one of the problems with it, is that it's going to apply kind of indiscriminately, not to what most people consider to be millionaires, but people who happen to earn a million dollars when they retired and sold their business. So that's the problem with this bill. Indeed, your book takes apart who are these uh, "quote unquote" millionaires. But let's let's back up even further and say who would back such a measure. Um, you know, why? Who who thinks such a thing is a good idea? Well, the proponents of the measure are mostly made up of state employees and and uh, public employees uh, through, through their unions, um, and that should that should really tell you something about it because. One of the things we pointed out here is when this same kind of proposal passed in, in California, uh, as, you, as you pointed out in previous hub shows, which are excellent, uh, what happened was the, uh, the economy really started to decline. And uh, in, in, but the money that they received, which was promised to be going to education, uh, K through 12, and uh, community colleges, they didn't do it. They, they never raised the amount of money that above the minimum constitutional level in California. And in California, uh, public payrolls uh, increased by more than 100% more than the average of the country. So it can be, it's, there's an element of this that becomes a, a, a huge uh, cash trough that the legislature can spend on whatever it wants. I think, yes, indeed, you pointed to earlier shows. Uh, I just want to make sure we address the, our listeners who maybe haven't listened to all uh, earlier shows about this. So effectively, it, it levies a tax, a uh, 80% increase on the higher, highest marginal rate um, for earners. Um, and I believe, again, some of the controversy is where will that money go? I think it's advocates uh, promise it will go to education or transportation, things that people really like. Uh, but your research and your book point out that uh, similar promises by other states, specifically California, where they said all this new money will go to transportation and education. And as your book points out, not a single penny more than the minimum went to education. Nothing changed before and after. Uh, they got slightly more revenue because 
uh, the state got more revenue, but as a as a percentage of of the budget, it's remained the same. Um, let me ask a little side question. Uh, we see a lot of headlines now, to the surprise of many, I guess perhaps all people, uh, regardless of where they stand, we're experiencing here in Massachusetts revenue surpluses in the billions of dollars. Now we had all thought that COVID would mean. Uh, uh, business or revenue tax revenue would decrease. I saw one week, uh, a one month surplus of $2 billion in just a single month. Why would advocates uh, add, um, suggest a massive tax increase while we don't know what to do with the money we're already taking in? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, Massachusetts uh, during COVID, the forecasts for the economic recovery were very conservative. As everyone was really, really worried going back to the beginning of like March 2020. But if you look at what happened with COVID, even a year afterwards, Massachusetts, uh, this is still in the height of the, of the uh, COVID pandemic, Massachusetts income from sales tax and from income tax was actually larger than any point in history. In other words, the economy, the, the, the COVID economic downturn was very concentrated in certain industries, tourism related and travel related, uh, restaurants, bars. Uh, These are the part of the economy that get murdered. But in Massachusetts, we recovered very quickly. And right now we're awash with money. There's so much money available to the legislature that they basically stopped appropriating it and just said, time out. We have to we, we just can't spend all this money now. We have to put it aside. We'll decide what to do with it later. So Massachusetts is awash in, in, in money. So you say, well, why are you going to put on one of the biggest tax increases in the history of the United States right in the middle of this? It's, it's worrisome. Yeah, it seems a, a sort of a... a- yeah, sort of be a, a naked advocacy for just taxes in general, whether it's needed or not, unless you know, taxes are inherently good. It, it, it just seems odd or uh, I'm perplexed. Now, your book, uh, I think, very well admits that none of us has a crystal ball. Uh, we are, you and I advocating, and your book advocates against uh, this uh, uh, Prop 80 uh, or millionaire's tax, but neither of us has a crystal ball. We don't know what kind of effect it will have, but you do try to... Um, um, uh, imply uh, or ask your readers to infer from the experiences of other states. We've touched briefly here. You mentioned Connecticut and uh, California. I'd like to go a little deeper uh, into that. Um, let's start with Connecticut. Uh, what happened when uh, Connecticut uh, raised its top income rate? Um, uh, again, they, they've done it several times, so uh, it doesn't have to be one rate increase, maybe over the course of a decade, several, I think four increases. What's been the effect on the Connecticut, Connecticut economy uh, after doing what we're thinking about doing in our future? Yeah, I mean, Connecticut is a, is a case study of why uh, these sudden very large tax increases can devastate a state economy. So in, in, in Connecticut, um, after, the, uh, after the Great Recession, so-called, which is at the end of the of President George W. Bush and beginning of President Obama administration, that recession, uh, C- Connecticut basically has still not recovered from that. Massachusetts recovered within two or three years and, and grew. But, Matt, but even a decade after that occurred, 
California, uh, Connecticut was still trying to recover the job, the employment levels that they had beforehand. They're the, basically the only state. They also had a real depression compared to the rest of the country in the increase in home values. Um, and businesses left, as we know, um, the most famous one being GE, which located to Boston. You know, I mean, the, that was a huge loss for Connecticut. And um, so it, it, showed, it just shows you that uh, these tax increases have effects on the general economy and the general economy can, can bring about adverse effects, a downturn that far outstrip the value of the tax increase. Indeed, we're talking, uh, we'll introduce a concept called the Laffer curve, where actually you raise taxes and revenue goes down because it has unintended yeah. secondary effects, meaning you can, you can tax people, but ultimately if they leave, you've, you're left with less tax than you started with. Your book mentions, in fact, in Connecticut, in one year, uh, you measure it by net outflow of income, one year, uh, 2018, before COVID, $1.2 billion in net uh, a grossed, uh, gross income in one year. Uh, so raise the taxes, people leave, the taxes go down. And of course, as you mentioned, Connecticut is, uh, the, the economy suffering, but the re- increased taxes didn't solve the, uh, Connecticut's need for more revenue. In other words, uh, the, the, uh, state government is still, uh, not getting the revenue it needs to support itself, meaning it's this downward spiral, it seems. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, uh, California, so, in California, that's really Massachusetts' number one competitor uh, in some respects uh, in the country because they're they're a very high-tech center and uh, Massachusetts competes. So they they decided out there to really have a high uh, millionaire's tax and they put it in effect and then companies started to leave. They lost Elon Musk. The, the people who the people say, well, let's tax, let's let's tax um, high income earners. Uh, well, when they're when they're entrepreneurs deciding where to locate, what you have to remember is that they can leave. And Elon Musk and and Tesla uh, just moved the national headquarters to no tax taxes. They don't have an income tax. So they, so Elon Musk just went from a state where he's going to pay thirteen percent income tax rate. To one where it's zero, and it's and you say, well, don't it'll never leave California. California is so great, we're so we're so invaluable. No, it doesn't work that way. Same thing with Massachusetts. Uh, it's very easy for companies to leave now, especially in the post-COVID remote work environment that's uh, emerging, continuing to emerge. Yeah, it puzzles me that uh, I mean, clearly this is a situation where reasonable people, rational people, respond to incentives. Um, I'm amazed by the number of people who want to, let's say, impose a five cent cost on a, a, a tax uh, on a bag at the grocery store with the hope that people bring their own bags to avoid a five percent yeah. tax or whatever you want to call it. And yet they won't leave. If Elon Musk at 13.3 percent of his income has to be tens of billions of dollars. Uh, yeah. Why did why wouldn't you anticipate him leaving? It, it, do, it doesn't make sense to me that people would be surprised. But uh, in your book, you do cite quite a bit of statistics. Um, uh, studies on this exodus from uh, California. I think the, we've had him on Hubwonk, the economist uh, from uh, Stanford, uh, Professor Rao, uh, 
uh, measured the uh, inflection point when the tax was imposed, uh, a, a market uh, exodus of, of high net earners and their companies uh, began to leave uh, California. And what's also interesting, I think, is uh, it's not just the people who leave, it's the people who decide not to go in the first place. People look at the tax uh, rates and say, you know what, uh, given all things considered and how much it costs to live there, I'm going to go to a different state. So, Yeah, I, I, I think um, I heard an ad or I read an ad on the Internet uh, yesterday. It was an ad from the uh, fair share uh, proponents. And it basically said uh, the really wealthy don't pay their fair share of taxes. And this would add a, uh, a tax on millionaires and the money would be spent on education and transportation. That's a very simple populist measure, uh, argument. And uh, it's very convincing to some people. But what I, what I think people have to begin to think about is what are the effects of doing this on a state like Massachusetts? Are we gonna get adversely affected like Connecticut did, that, the way California did? Uh, I think the, the answer is we're very likely to end up with a very bad economic outcome for the state if it happens. Right. And I think, you know, people say, well, you know, a little pain is worth it if we get better, um, better education, better roads. But as you pointed out in your book in California, they didn't get better educational roads. Uh, they got 50 percent more state workers. That's what yeah. they got for the money. Yeah. They, well, I don't they, think anyone yeah. thinks we need more state workers. <laughs> oh. I mean, in California, after the, this was a this was a really big tax increase, like is being proposed here, and it was all it was sold on the idea that we're going to spend money in education. In the end, uh, they didn't spend. They spent, I think, it was one tenth of one percent uh, more than the constitutional minimum. They never rose. It never rose above that. So, and the money was spent on increase in uh, uh, public uh, employee payroll. Which which was uh, which was increased precipitously, and that's that's one of the problems is that um, is that it's sold as a sweetener. Vote for this for education transportation, but it's already been dispositively uh, determined by a previous Supreme Court case and statements made by the state attorney general's office that the money doesn't have to be spent on education, transportation. The legislature can spend it whatever it wants. Of course, money is fungible. So if they want to promise it goes to education, they simply reduce the old dollars by the same amount they add the new dollars and thereby keep their promise. Uh, and not one new penny goes to education. Um, now, we, we uh, sort of uh, touched on it briefly, but um, close to the top of the show, you mentioned that uh, we're labeling millionaires as those people who earn more than a million in a year, but you mentioned only briefly, but go into it in depth in your book. Uh, people who make a million dollars in one year rarely make it more than once, meaning it's usually business owners who sell their business or homeowners who sell a business. People who've worked their whole lives, perhaps they've uh, deferred income. Uh, their business is their retirement, and they get a one-time and one-time only payout. That is very often, and you know, honestly, uh, to survive in uh, retirement, one needs if one's selling a business more than a million dollars. Share with us uh, what your uh, book talks about: is who are these quote-unquote millionaires who will be swept up in this tax? Yeah, I mean, going back in the history of the United States, uh, it used to be more than seventy percent of private sector employees had a pension plan. That's since, since that time, it shrunk to closer to 10%. Public employees still have retirement plans, not, not private sector employees. For 
for people who have their own business. They start a business, they operate for 20, 30, 40 years. And that, that, the sale of that business on the retirement is their nest egg. That's why this is a, this, and this tax applies to them. In other words, we call them one-time millionaires. More than 50% of the people who earn a million dollars do so only once, two-thirds only twice or fewer. So these, these are, this, this is, is a tax that, is, that masquerades as a tax on uh, you know, millionaires uh, driving around in limos, uh, wearing silk top hats like the Monopoly guy. But in the end, it's the company down the street. It's got an auto garage. The guy ran for 40 years and he finally sells it. And they say, well, guess what? You're a millionaire. He said, I did not know I was a millionaire. This is the only business by money that I saved up over 40 years. And you're going to tax, you know, so the, the, the you know, the proponents, what they should have done and what many parties asked them to do was to put in some kind of a income averaging to prevent this one time millionaire. Also, they said, don't tax your sale of your house. You know, so some houses are going for more than a million dollars. A lot of houses are going for more than a million dollars. So why are you going to count that? That's a one-time event. So, but anyway, they threw the kitchen sink in and the tax applies to basically everything, uh, every kind of income. That's, that's a problem. Yeah, that is a problem. And it just occurred to me when you were talking, uh, if you're comparing it to a public pension, when one retires as a public pension, so the value of that pension, uh, if you were to look at uh, the payout over time would be valued in the millions, but there's no, there's no taxable event. Oh. They don't actually sell and then create that pension rather they just receive the pension whereas the the business owner who's taken a lifetime of risk must have a taxable event must sell it in order to really realize a sort of a pseudo pension a nest egg that they can spend off in their old age so one group yeah. gets taxed and the other is ignored yeah um i mean I, I said earlier that the main proponents of this uh, are public employees and uh in their unions they're, they're, they're the they're the driving force behind it and when public employees retire in Massachusetts on a state pension, uh, they don't have any income tax. It's not this zero income tax. So, so the same people who are asking for this tax to go on as a retirement tax on private sector people who run their own business, the public employees have paid zero taxes. And now they want these other folks to pay among the highest taxes in, the, in America. Yeah, this is, yeah, you know, the closer you look, the, the worse it gets. Now, there is, you know, there, you mentioned uh, some studies, you, you briefly uh, brought it up earlier in our conversation that it's the perception by many that, you know, we call this the fair share because the, the perception is that uh, high earners or um, wealthier people don't pay the same percentage or portion of their overall income in taxes. Uh, there's been some studies, and in, in your book points to many of the flaws that say, "Look, uh, you know, if I'm making a million dollars every year, uh, my my the, the percentage of my money going to the government is smaller than the the poor guy making relatively little, fifty thousand dollars or thirty thousand dollars. You know, he, he's paying a huge amount in taxes." Your 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 book goes into length and debunks this myth uh, briefly. How would you say why is it the fact that um, a flat tax isn't indeed regressive? Yeah, okay, well. I think the, the strongest uh, argument on that point is that the top 10% of uh, income earners in Massachusetts 
pay more in state taxes than the bottom 90%. Now, that's a that's statistic that we published. It's based on uh, IRS statistics of uh, Massachusetts reporter, reporting tax returns. The top 10% of people in the state for income pay more than the bottom 90%. They pay like 56% of the total, if you follow that. So uh, when people say they're not paying their fair share, uh, they, they're paying 90%. If this passes, they're gonna pay 95%. So, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a myth that high-income people don't pay their fair share. Massachusetts has got a great thing, if you ask me. We, we have a 5% income tax rate. That's a good rate. It's advantageous to us. It attracts people to come here and build uh, businesses and to stay here, as opposed to places like Connecticut or New York or California, who constantly want to steal our businesses from us. That's a bad term, but they want to poach our businesses from us and and recruit businesses to their states. One of our advantages is a good place to be. It has a fair average tax rate in the country. It's a selling point, and it's a mistake, in my opinion, to get rid of it. And indeed, uh, you mentioned in your book, um, and we're getting near the uh, end of our time together, uh, that we, uh, that states at least themselves see themselves as uh, laboratories, 50 different laboratories of democracy, and each has its own uh, prerogatives to impose taxes on its citizens, but they're all competing for the same, let's say, creative investment, uh, a risk-taking audience. They all want the job makers and the uh, uh, economic rainmakers to come to their state. Um where are people in Massachusetts going if 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 they do leave for uh, greener pastures? Where are they likely to go? If you were to guess, if this is imposed, where we accept that they will leave, where will they go? Um, and um, has that propensity to leave uh, the I think um, what do uh, um, economists call footloose? Uh, they're more footloose than than the the lower income people. Um, uh, where will they go and um, why do you think, you know, what, what will be their reasons? Well, the the relocation of um, people from Massachusetts historically, this, this is a subject that's closely tracked by the federal government, shows that we have been losing um, billions of dollars of adjusted gross income to Florida, Florida, New Hampshire. Florida, New Hampshire represents 70% of our outflow of people and taking their income to other states. So why uh, Florida uh, has low tax rates, no income tax, there's no capital gains tax, there's no estate tax, and that's a magnet. But there's also the Sunbelt states and Texas, uh, North Carolina, California, uh, you know, they, they, they're here advertising, pitching to take companies to come to their states. So it's a, it's a competition um, in Massachusetts to, to attract and retain businesses. People should remember that uh, when, when, they, when they vote on things like this, because, you know, Massachusetts used to be like the leader in manufacturing in the United States. People don't think that could be true, but if you look at Laurel, Lawrence, Lowell, New Bedford, Fall River, Springfield, all of our mill cities, one time we were the national leader, even even going back recently to like 1970, uh, we, we had a fairly good amount of manufacturing, but it has left. 
Manufacturing has left Massachusetts for the most part. And we've had to adjust by, by having innovation companies come in. That's our job, is to try to get companies doing a great job in, in Cambridge and Boston with biotech, Route 128, around our universities, you know, Northeastern, BU, Harvard, MIT, Tufts. You know, we, we, have, we have got uh, an advantage to recruit companies. But why do you want to boom these people with a, with a uh, nationally high, uh, very high uh, tax rate? That's not an invitation. It's, it's, a, it's a ushering them out the door. Yeah, indeed. And we have an endless wellspring of, of talented people coming to our schools. Uh, and then we, the fact that we've got an advantage, but then squander that advantage by uh, chasing them out with a, uh, a high tax rate if, if they do become successful. I would imagine uh, your, your book does talk, uh, dedicate a part of a chapter to the fact that now in this wake of co after COVID, and we've all learned how to telecommute you, um, via Zoom, we're even more footloose. We're more inclined to live where we want uh, and therefore pay taxes where we want. I would imagine uh, the competition among states uh, becomes even greater knowing that one can really work from almost anywhere at this point. Yeah, it's it's been a real game changer, the, the, the shift to remote work. Uh, it grew during COVID and it's, it has legs, uh, is what we're seeing. So when a company is deciding um, to whether or not to come to Massachusetts, we have a very high cost of living. We have a high uh, cost of living compared to uh, other areas in the country. That's a disadvantage for location. Uh, but one advantage we do have is that the is that the state of Massachusetts has been on a pro-economic growth strategy since 1970 to reverse our tax Massachusetts reputation, and I think we've. Uh, We've done a good job of of uh, of ending tax Massachusetts, and I think that this proposal, within a one fell swoop, will trigger us back to that uh, th that economic adverse effect of very high taxes. It's a shame. It seems perhaps every generation needs to learn again the lessons of the past. Uh, I hope we can avoid putting our hand on the stove again. <laughs> And, and learn from other states' mistakes instead of insisting on doing it ourselves. So we're at the, at the end of the time together. Um, uh, we certainly haven't addressed all the issues in the book. It's a wonderful book, uh, full of facts and figures. Where can our listeners buy your book uh, so they can read it for themselves? Amazon.com. <laughs> you can also contact www.pioneerinstitute.org. Okay. And uh, this can be readily available. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, uh, yeah, I'm expecting Amazon will have it. It might not be at the uh, Harvard Bookstore uh, uh, just yet. Not, it won't be on that front uh, front page there. Um, now, also, I think you also have, uh, this should release before the event, uh, if there's still tickets left. You're having, a, I think Pioneer's having a, a book release event um, coming up. Uh, do you know the day or how we can, our listeners can buy tickets for that? Yeah, that's again uh, to make a to make a reservation for the uh, unfolding. There, it's going to be you go on www.pioneerinstitute.org, and it's very easy to do. 
Wonderful. Well, they can go there for our, our Hogwag podcast and also for your book and also to uh, reserve their space for the for the book launch. So uh, well done. Very good job, Greg. This book was a fun read, an easy read uh, and a wonderful resource when our, let's say, our reachable, our persuadable middle voters, uh, when they're going to that ballot, they'll at least be armed with a good deal of information. Thank you very much for writing the book. And thanks again for joining me on Hubwonk once again. Thanks, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you want to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me for future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.